So I'd like to um, you know, continue with our Dharma contemplation and practice this morning after our day of rest yesterday or more individual practice yesterday. We're tuning ourselves again to working as a group, to supporting the practice as a group together. Uh, we're committing ourselves to the, the retreat schedule as, as far as we can and finding Again, this tuning of the lute, tuning of the instrument, finding our way with it. If we want to tighten the string a bit, um, looking at ways that we might want to schedule that in, being more with the walking or doing, uh, filling some of the gaps with some sitting, we can. This the structure is a skeletal framework, and then it's for us to 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 add to it if we wish to increase that tightening of the string. Or, or conversely, if we find that we're really struggling to, to find the, the right rhythm for us in terms of resting or adjusting how we pace ourselves. So um, approaching again the schedule and then as a group uh, re-emphasizing the holding of the silence is really critical really for maintaining the meditative atmosphere uh, for the work. It's very easy for that in a small group to erode. And it's something at Dhammagiri we have to work quite hard to 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 um, support that because it's natural for a small group and for a sense of friendship for it's easy to to want to you know to um, to share things not from a, a place of necessarily distracting just because there might be a very good feeling. So it's something we have to be very mindful of, of and particularly, you know, working in the kitchen and it's a place where often again in retreat centers and that's held by people that are just doing that. So, so we have, you know, just to pay extra attention to that so for the group we can have that sense of the, the holding space. Um, and this is also why I find the note writing very helpful. One forgets, I forget, but it's very helpful just because it gives a bit of space and gives um, respects other people's space. We don't sort of crash into it. So just to to bring that and then internally to re-establish again with this beginner's mind, as we've um, been reminded by um, so many masters that it's always a question of beginning here and now. Um, so at any moment, if we felt yesterday we just sort of got really somehow lost <laughs> or we forgot what we were doing, it's okay. We just always, wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves, we just begin again here and now, coming to the breath. It's that simple, bringing attention, breathing in and breathing out. Um, I've just laid out a little bit of what we've been doing here is an ongoing written template for our practice, going through, again, this focus on the balancing of the samatha, the calming, which is not something we just throw out when we do vipassana. Or it's something that we again and again and again hone and tune and practice and cultivate the capacity to be present and to root our attention in the breath and in the body awareness and and being attentive to feeling tone, to sensation, to mind states, to the mood, to what's present, to sound, to space, being attentive here and now. Um, And then as we become more present, more aware, what is actually here becomes illuminated. 
And so we've been looking at the range of what becomes illuminated from the hindrances, that which obstructs, to the more subtle experiences that can appear in samadhi, what's called the nimitta, where we might have uh, subtle sensory experiences, but also we might feel uh, a real sense of cohesion, gatheredness, a sense of lightness, stillness, peacefulness, all of these are fruits of a gathered heart, um, which are pleasant and which we can cultivate and learn as we gain skill in samatha and samadhi, we can actually, over time, it does take, for most of us, for some people they have some kind of karmic affinity with this practice, but for most of us, it takes time and patience to really cultivate it as a skill, and it becomes a really positive abiding for us that we can return to again and again in our life, in our day and in moments, um, to reconnect with a sense of inner well-being, groundedness, perspective. But ultimately, as we uh, learn from Ajahn Chah and from the Buddha himself, that the whole object of this meditation is not just to get more and more and more tranquil, more and more peaceful, but to at some point turn that gathered mind Um, that quality of heightened attentiveness to contemplate the Dhamma or to contemplate the nature of things and to see them according more to reality than to our assumptions. So looking at what's called the three characteristics of impermanence, uh, unreliability and uh, fundamental emptiness or lacking in inherent solidity. and in particular regard to what's called the khandas, the five khandas. So <clears throat> some of the territory we covered in the retreat, I mean, we, so we've just been doing this for a week, but this is a lifetime's contemplation, so it's not like, oh, God, I should have got all of that down in this week for this, last week for now, what we're doing now. But just to recognize that, you know, this is an ongoing practice, that we just, you know, we just cultivate little by little. Um, for the sake of ultimately, why do we do this practice? For the sake of the fruit of the insight meditation is to taste the heart that's liberated from clinging, liberated from aversion. The heart to taste its own nature, uh, to let go. And here, right at the end of the the second page, I just I, I just find it very interesting because sometimes. Um, it can be said that the the way it's articulated, the, the fruit of this path can sometimes sound quite negative, letting go, non-attachment, um, non-self, and so on. But what's interesting that the Buddha, often the way that it is spoken to is in negatives, the via negativa that sometimes is talked about in Christian contemplative not this, not that, or in the, um, in the Advaita Vedanta, it's not this, not that. It's just the, the constant non-identification um, with any perception or any of the skandhas. But here we find in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha talking in quite positive terms about the fruit of the taste of Nibbāna. Um, 
in terms of the, in the, the, the island, the shelter, the harbour, the refuge, the wonderful, the marvellous, the blessed, safety, the subtle, the taintless, the truth, the deathless, the everlasting. So it's, I find that that list often doesn't really get talked about very much. So I wanted to just put it there because it's, it's, it's a lovely reference to have. And then I've also <coughs> handed out for your own reflection and your own time that a, a teaching that we passed over probably quite quickly but I think it's really really helpful teaching for practice and for daily life and this is the relationship particularly to unpleasant feeling Vedana and the, from the Arrow Sutta and if you remember in this teaching the Buddha talks about the experience of unpleasant feeling and how if that's not seen clearly and seen with discernment and seen with mindfulness, it tends to generate the underlying tendency towards aversion, uh, towards greed or lust and towards delusion. So the Buddha then says, not only do we experience unpleasant feeling, we create a mental karma that's also painful in reaction. And and you made the analogy, it's a bit like being hit by one arrow and then we push in another arrow into the same place and create even more suffering. So our practice, an insight practice, is to just know however unpleasant feeling arises, whether as body sensation, as mental, psychodynamic, emotional process, Um, It's not to say there isn't a whole journey of going into the whys and wherefores of why that might be, which is valid in in and of itself, but the skill in contemplative life is just to be able to keep knowing this is just as it is, unpleasant feeling, pleasant feeling. If we have pleasant feeling, then want to grasp more. And in this way, the mind begins to get a taste for this prerequisite for the more profound letting go, the taste of, it's called viraga or, or, or dispassion or just being able to let things be as they are without having to keep, you know, chewing at it. <laughs> why, why and shouldn't and, you know, um. So a lot of what we, <clears throat> we work with in meditation um, when we sit down here and we want to be peaceful, actually what we're confronted with is often the accumulated momentum of the karma of our life, literally meaning the habits, the tendencies, the ways we've thought, the, the ways we've, you know, relationship with the body, however unconscious we are with the body, and the habits of mind. And we tend to feel, oh, you know, meditation's making me worse. <laughs> because I sit down and I suddenly realize how crazy I am. (laughs) The fact is we're always a bit crazy. We just have these amazingly sophisticated uh, ways of distracting ourselves. So we don't really notice, or we don't notice the underlying pain, or, or dukkha, or this unpleasant experience that we might have, either as emotion or feeling, or as bodily sensation. So in meditation, it's, it's, uh, it's not that we're actually getting worse, but we're allowing ourselves to be sensitive and to feel what's here. And that's not easy. Um, hence this 
encouragement to, to really, when we do begin to relax and open, and maybe what starts to come up for us is some of the undigested momentum of our habits, our, our aversions or our resistances or our distractedness or our longings or our anxieties or our fears. Actually, it's very... If we don't have skill in how to hold that and be with that, then rather than healing and digesting and releasing from that momentum, we just tend to recreate and reinforce and deepen the grooves of, the, of, the, uh, of our reactivity. So the, the, uh, we're really talking about the heart here, the jitta, the heart and how the jitta or the heart, body, feeling, tone, mood are all intertwined. So when we feel sensation, it will ricochet back into the heart often. Particularly if it has emotional content, it's quite powerful. So in meditation, it's important to know how, how to be with the processes of our self. Even however empty the self is, that we still experience the self in its process as thought, as feeling, as memory, as desire, as longing as you know, the very, very deep sense of just wanting to exist somehow, as talked about yesterday. How do, we, how do we replace our reactivity around that, either the reactivity of just being swept along, what's called the flood of just being swept by the momentum uh, of what presents itself, or then or struggling and trying to push stuff away so we can stay peaceful. How do we... How can we be in relationship with what is in a way that maintains some steadiness, some this quality of gatheredness, attentiveness that we've been cultivating? So the, the art really of this meditative process is beginning to replace uh, the reactivity and the busyness with with mindfulness, with these moments of mindfulness. So this morning I really want to illuminate a little bit more how we can understand mindfulness in terms of its practice. Because it's such a a pivotal fulcrum around which everything else uh, is, is, you know, turns really in terms of the understanding of of contemplative practice. Um, And it tends to sometimes, particularly in our more secular presentation of mindfulness, it sometimes gets quite, there's quite a reductionist understanding of it in some ways where it's, it, it can be understood just as more as a clinical sort of technique to help reduce stress or, you know, reframe cognitively our sense of relationship to ourself or the world, all, both of which can be very skillful. I'm not, it's not a judgment value on that, but just to say actually when we look back to the original um, meaning and understanding in terms of meditation, we can get a much fuller and richer and more vibrant, um, almost poetical meaning (laughs) of mindfulness um, in terms of how it can be so transformative. When we, 
when we look at the patterns of the heart, the conditioning, what, what this, this fourth sankhara, um, this fourth, um, sorry, the fourth khanda, which is sankhara. Uh, we've been looking a little bit at the, the hologram of, of the experience of the five khandas as they emerge, feeling, tone, sensation, perception, memory, moments of what's called consciousness, moments of knowing, thought, moments of hearing, moments of tasting, moments of touching, moments of thinking, moments of seeing. This is what's called vijnana, sensory consciousness. All of these moments that move so fast, the khandas as they flow, contribute the sense of, create the sense of what's called a, a sankhara, a shape. Um, and sankhara, sankhara is, is that which is... Um, as I mentioned the other day, the, the translation of the word san means come together and kara from the word karma means doing or making. It's the way we make, we come to, we make ourselves really. Where we, where the, fundamentally sankara is volition, where we place our volition, where we identify, where we move to in a way that begins to formulate the sense of who we are, the sense of self. And it's the, the jitta or the heart. And there's so many layers of sankhara. There's so many different shapes and forms and conditionings that we have that it's really a thick stew. You know, the, the Ajahn Sajito translates the word as sankhara as pro, pro, I think he's used a very modern word, as, as programs. So you could look at our hard drive <laughs> of the heart and say, well, if you cleaned out the hard drive, it would be, you know, it would be empty space. And then we, it's just filled with all these like, zillions of programs that get activated. You know, so something will hit some sensory impression or some memory and it will activate one of the programs. You know, the person that feels sorry for themselves, the person that's feeling really confident and full of zist and zell and, and out, out there to do stuff, the person that's collapsed, the person that knows everything, the person that's doesn't know anything. You know, we have like a million different programs that run, you know, depending on, depending on many different things. Uh, so we could, you know, this, this sankhara, and, the, and what, what is the pattern, what is patterned and what is shaped is the, the jitta or the heart or the mind, mind. So the mind doesn't really know its original nature, uh, it's, it's brightness is clarity, it tends to mistake its nature for the shaping of sankhara. And one of the most powerful elements for shaping sankhara is what's the, the, the kind of what's called sanya or perception, how we perceive. Yeah, so, so, for example, <coughs> we might you know, we might have a perception of someone comes into the room, maybe it's someone um, we feel like for, we feel dislike for, and immediately when that person comes in the room or we see that person or we're in town and we bump into them, with all of the patterning, all of the memory around that person will be activated. 
And often what we might be seeing is not really that person, but we're seeing the projection of what the, the, the programming does or the projection of the mind itself. You know, the mind just projects, yes, like that person, they're like this, like that, like that, and we have all this memory associated or we don't like them. And actually what we start to understand and start to realize is that we just, we, we're often reacting to our own projections. <laughs> the mind is reacting to its own projections and not really seeing what's there. So when the sankhara and the patterning's thick enough and, and, delu- and tainted with delusion, with greed and aversion, the poisons, and we're not able to see clearly, then we're just destined really to react out, act out. Uh, the, the unhealed patterns, the painful patterns that are conditioned. The example I, I sometimes use to try and talk about this, because it's a, not an easy thing to understand, so, but we can get the sense for it, which is the beginning. It's like, for example, here, <coughs> here in uh, Dhammagiri, um, sometimes we've had uh, young men that have come to do the gardens here, young Zulu men, and for some reason, in the Zulu culture, they have this sort of irrational fear of frogs. <laughs> There's sort of all sorts of m- magical purposes, uh, attributes are are um, given to a frog. You know, some sort of strange muti that the frogs carry, strange sort of voodooish implication. So you see these strapping Zulu guys that come and they're strong and they, you know, and they come and they, doing the work. They're very tough, and then they see a frog and they completely fall apart. And they'll come. Oh, there's a frog. There's a frog. There's a frog. You sort of have to go up and take the frog away and you know put it somewhere else. And it occurs to you know it occurred to me like it's really amazing because there's just this creature, and when someone sees it, it has this culturally conditioned fear or perception, and they're reacting, and you know, really they're reacting to their own projection. It's got nothing whatsoever to do what they're to, to the creature they're seeing. They're reacting to their own fear or their own anxiety, and, and, uh, which is really very bad news for the creature. <laughs> but it's actually, I mean, that's a more obvious example, but it, that's kind of something that's going on all the time for all of us, is that we don't really see clearly, we were reacting to how our perceptions according to our preferences, our views, our conditioning, our cultural biases, we're reacting to the projection of our perceptions and how, that, how deeply they've programmed our hearts. It's very, very difficult sometimes just to be present because what we're seeing is not really what's present. We're seeing our reactions. And then we think someone else is doing it to us. Mm. And yeah, so, so in terms of the beginning of healing, you know, shifting um, from this reactivity that's fueled by perception, erroneous perception, fueled by our views. Uh, what begins to heal the heart or free the heart from its programs and what begins to heal the more painful programs and conditionings of the heart is, can be, and very profoundly is, this practice of mindfulness, this 
this replacing the reactivity with a quality of attentiveness and presence that's not just clinical observation, but is also infused with a sense of, of gentleness, with kindness, with patience, but infused with a sense of luminosity. Luminosity of just that quality of being able to be present and recognize that knowingness of the mind that isn't the program, that which is just simply present, that which is just knowing, that which is just attentive. As we, as we do this, as we, it's not that, you know, again, that it's us doing it, but as mindfulness is held, then in and of itself it begins to, you know, it's like, it's like a, a homeopathic remedy if you've ever taken homeopathy. It doesn't look like much. In fact, most people say it doesn't exist of anything. It's some sort of odd trace element. Um, but if you, I've taken homeopathy sometimes, and it can have a very strong effect, um, curative effect. Sometimes it enhances the symptom before it cures. In the same way, mindfulness, I, I feel, has a similar idea. It's similar principle. It doesn't look very much just to be, and we don't trust it very much, because we're so conditioned to feel I've got to control and sort things out and work it out and get my life together and. And when we come from that premise, we just keep, you know, circling in the programs. But the, the mindfulness, just say, well, actually, what I trust, and I find this, again, very helpful in everyday life. If I'm faced, I don't know what to do. Um, I don't know what the answer is. There's a conflict. There's a difficulty. It's a painful feeling. I feel overwhelmed. Uh, or I'm sitting here in meditation and I feel really exhausted or some difficult state comes up. Or, or on, the con- on the contrary, I feel a sense of that which is really pleasant and I just start to proliferate around how I can hold and create a whole lifestyle that can just <laughs> help me stay forever in a state of samadhi. <laughs> and it's that moment that that's those edges where we just say, okay, rather than trying to control the whole world according to my agendas, can I just really trust that mindfulness knows that being present, awareness will bring things into harmony, will heal, will illuminate, will resolve. So the, the original word mindfulness, sati or shmrti in uh, Sanskrit means, has this sense of bringing back together, um, but it also is often coupled with the term um, yoni somani sakara, which means, which means not only to be mindful and to be present to, but it has this sense, yoni meaning womb or original matrix, is translated by Rhys Davis, which I like very much. Um, Mani sakara means bringing the mind bringing back all that is dispersed, all of that patterning, all of that momentum, all of the chart, you know, as the things that are the hindrances or however we articulate that, bringing that into the, into the womb of awareness. So it's not just a clinical holding attention to, but mindfulness implies this capacity, a sense of capacity to hold in awareness 
And, and another um, interesting coupling word that can go with mindfulness, vidya, to see, or vidya in Sanskrit meaning, meaning to know, to sense, to feel, to know, also has this sense within it of rev- revelation, which I really like. So it's almost got this feeling mindfulness with those... Um, with those adjunct terms, uh, and one that Ajahn Sumodho likes to use a lot, sati, sampajanya, mindfulness with clear comprehension, or intu- he translates it as intuitive knowing. It has the sense of actually as we hold attention, although it doesn't seem like a big deal, as we trust that rather than trusting ourselves, you know, trusting the mind to try and work it all out, as we hold attention to the whole dynamic of our experience here and now, rooted in the four foundations of mindfulness, mindful to breath, to body, to feeling tone, to sensation, to mind states, to, to, to the whole appearance, the, the holographic complex dimensions of our here and now experience, as we hold that in the womb of awareness, presence, with an accurate sense of attentiveness, being with breath, then whatever needs to be revealed, resolved, healed, illuminated, discerned, happens in and of itself. And begins to uh, clarify. Mindfulness is supported um, supported by being present, obviously, and it's supported by the quality of energy that we bring to being present, the quality of effort, how you know this it's guided. We've been talked about some of the supports of mindfulness, directing attention, how is it now? staying with how it is, feeling with how it is, letting go, being with how it is, this is how it is. (laughs) These kinds of phrases that help us keep attuning. But also there's something quite important about the the quality of, of, of effort that we apply. So I just want to finish the last 10 minutes or so just talking about that because it's quite an important support. Again, what, what we, um, <clears throat> the tendencies of how we relate to our energy body, how we activate effort in our life, we have very deep patterns and conditionings and tendencies around that. Um, that when we come into meditation, we'll bring the same kind of application that we're used to. It's only natural. We're not going to suddenly learn a whole new thing overnight. So, if we, um, you know, if we if we are very goal orientated in life, or very ambitious, or always wanting to get somewhere, um, think in term in those sort of terms. Then, when we meditate, 
often there will be a tendency towards applying effort in the same way. You know, we'll be sort of leaning into where we think we need to get. Uh, you know, or, or there'll be, in some ways, it's quite useful to have a lot of yang energy. It can really, a lot of will, it can really help us get going. But if we have too much of that, and we become too reliant on that, then we'll tend to find, if, it's out of, if the effort's out of balance, we'll tend to find ourselves getting disappointed in our meditation because the processes of, you know, the way mindfulness, sati, awareness works is its own unfolding. It's not according to the agenda of the will. The body-mind processes have a much different timeline than, than our agenda. So we'll get, you know, either tense or tight or or um, irritable. That's another symptom of being overly ambitious sometimes. Impatient with ourselves, with others. Getting people getting in the way. <laughs> Noises getting in the way. And conversely, if, we, if, we're, if our energy pattern is more to be a sort of collapse type, just looking for the place to collapse, then when we sit, we'll be more wafty, we'll, you know, just sit here and the mind will just, we think we're doing Vipassana, but we're really just daydreaming. And we learn to get quite comfortable and then we just, the mind just drifts and you know, we, we can be very prone to anxiety, to worry when we have too much yin and not enough balance of yang. And we can find ourselves... Um, you know, in life feeling very just wafted around, overly influenced by every leaf in the wind. So to explore, rather than judging ourselves, and if you're like me, you probably move a bit between obsessive-compulsive driven to collapse, <laughs> depressive. <laughs> it's like, and sometimes you get somewhere in the middle and it's great for a while. And for <laughs> Well, you know, and it's, it's so easy to judge ourselves and say, oh, God, I should be more, you know, upright or I'm so collapsed or I should be more relaxed. But to, to just explore how to, again, this loot idea, how do we gently, with mindfulness, with discernment, understanding, yes, this is the habit I have, how can we just in little ways tune up? So if we're very tight, can I just, on the out-breath, can I just remind myself to let go? I have all the time in the world to just be with this moment. Can we bring a little more metta, kindliness to ourselves, to others, to the process? If we're too loose and we find ourselves just wafting through the days, waiting for the end, uh, just, you know, there's not enough in, the interest hasn't caught yet, so the, 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 the fruits can't come because the interest, the pity, the sukha can't really arise because there hasn't been the engagement. So can, and yet we feel completely intimidated by, or overwhelmed by trying to get ourselves, get any will going. <laughs> so what I find when I'm in that kind of state, can, you know, can I give myself a, a goal I can achieve? Can I just be with five breaths? And just 
okay, three breaths. <laughs> you know, can I count them on my fingers and follow three breaths down and follow? Okay, one, and be really pleased, really give yourself a little, as Godwin would say, a plus. When you, you know, I was with one breath, that's good. Yeah, that's great. You know, and that gives you a little encouragement to be with the next breath. So, in a way, just exploring, exploring how to balance this lute, the strings of our instrument. So we get the feeling and, you know, to get the feeling of the moments when we can, you know, the purification of effort, ultimately, when there's just such a fine balance, there's no one really doing it, there's no one making effort. There's no, no one getting somewhere. It's just the capacity to taste the simplicity of that, the heart that is mindfully present, fully present with how it is here and now, allowing that presence, that mindfulness to unfold the path for us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.